In today's episode, I speak to Pete Denny, the founding partner at Climate VC, which is a new venture fund investing in climate tech ventures, and the fund is based in the UK. Climate VC is planning to actually fund 100 startups over the next three years, so it's going to be quite an active investor, especially in the UK landscape, and is already quite active. And, you know, there's a few criteria, but one of the biggest ones is really to fund solutions that can have at least a 10 million ton CO2 equivalent impact per year. So like big ambitious solution, maybe also sometimes solutions that other investors are kind of shying away from and maybe not patient enough for. So we'll talk about that in a second. So prior to Climate VC, Pete was a founder himself. He was an advisor to fast growing companies and a community builder. But we'll talk about that in a second. So first of all, welcome to the podcast, Pete. Great to have you again. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. It's nice to see you again. No, that's good. Yeah, we had you speak at the Climate Tech Founders Summit last year, which was great. That's how we initially met and good to have you on the podcast. And we'll have to summit again in November with like a thousand founders and investors. So we got to speak about that one as well uh, very soon. But let's start with your personal story. So you've had quite a varied career, I would say, right? Like a lot of different careers and skill sets and roles that you've been doing. So tell us a bit about your personal story. What was your journey towards venture? You haven't always been in venture. And how did it all start with Climate VC? Wow, how far back do I go? (laughs) (laughs) I suppose I'm a techie by background, a software technologist. I've been a CTO. I've been a founder. I've done a lot of consulting. And I suppose it all started when I did my first startup in Paris in the 90s just at the height of the dot-com boom. And I've been alternating between startups and corporate life. I wasn't a very good founder, actually. We never managed to make it off minimum wage in this uh, e-commerce startup that I ran for two years. I was snapped up by some microsystems where they would literally hire anybody. So they hired me. That was really good for me because they kind of sent me all around the world, taught me the ropes, and I got into deep software technology. I've spent a lot of time consulting in financial services sector. I was CTO of FinTech, uh, a robo-advisor where we kind of pioneered something quite novel in the way that you could use AI to give financial advice to people in the pension space. It was the first of its kind in the world. After that, I went back to consulting. I started an AI consultancy. I was quite heavily involved in the AI scene in the Midlands. And that consulting took me to a couple of climate tech projects, one of which was using graph technology to try and discover the hidden sources of funding for deforestation. So who's causing deforestation? Who's paying for it? Do they know they're doing it? So it's kind of the same tech that we were using to discover the Panama Papers. It was that tech. But that was really the first time that I'd seen the climate emergency up close. And that's when I decided to put my 25-year career in, in tech, put an end to that, and then focus for the rest of my life on fighting climate change. I took six months off to kind of explore what can I bring to the table. And it was at the end of that vision quest that I realized that early stage ventures where it's at. The reason I arrived at that conclusion is because a lot of the solutions that we need are quite crazy and they're new and we need to innovate. We need to innovate like dramatically and at pace. There's a lot of climate tech VCs in the world now. There's, you know, last time I counted there were 200, but a lot of them are focused on kind of later stage on the safer stuff. So I thought, right, early stage venture, that's where I can show up. I reckon I can do that. I know how money works. I've worked in the financial sector a lot. I've been in startups. I've been a founder. I've scaled a lot of startups. This is where I'll show up. Amazing. I'm actually interested as a bit of off tangent, but I got quite curious when you mentioned the kind of machine learning model to discover who is like actually destroying the rainforest it was, right? Yeah. It like, how did it work? What did you uncover with that? I'd be curious to learn a bit more. So there are known bad actors in the world, aren't there? The agencies, they send reporters out into fields and they live there maybe undercover for a long time to discover who's got chainsaws and who's cutting down what. 
when they're there, when you see forest, take a satellite photo, for example, and you see there was virgin forest there last year, and now there's no virgin forest. And a year later, oh, now there's palm trees, right? That's um, deforestation to plant palm trees. Now, that's not illegal, but it's illegal under most circumstances. So organizations will rent parcels of land, parcels of rainforest, and they're not allowed to deforest more than a certain percentage, a small percentage. But there are shenanigans that you can get up to to encourage, if you as a company own this land, to encourage people to come in with chainsaws and chop the trees down to burn it. And if that happens, then you're allowed to plant, e.g. palm oil plantations on that land. So there's known bad actors, people who we know who are doing that. And what we were doing is bringing together multiple different data sets, enormous data sets of here's a list of all of the companies in the world. Here's all of their directors. Here's what else their directors in. And those companies, here's who else are directors in those companies. So we ended up with this gigantic graph of all of the companies and partnerships and directorships in the world. And then this other set of data, which we merged with it, which are who are the known bad actors. And so then you'd see in this graph kind of structure, you'd see the very short hops where it's maybe only two or three hops from Cargill to Samsung, for example. So ownership that people were trying to hide through things like shell companies and so on. Oh, got it. Super, super exciting. Let's focus on Climate VC and your thesis, right? So I think in the last one or two years, we've seen a lot of new venture funds in climate tech. Obviously, last year was interesting and crazy environment with loads of new funds being launched as well. Now this year is a little bit more challenging, but I'd love to hear from you, like, why did you decide to start Climate VC and what's your thesis that makes you stand out versus other funds out there? I thought I need to devote the rest of my life to this. And if you're going to do that, it needs to be worthwhile, doesn't it? You know, I only get one shot at life. And I think the thing that I spend the rest of my life doing needs to be quite big and, and important. You know, I'm not big and important, but uh, I'd like to think that my life has meant something. And I remember being at a tech conference where they were talking about climate change. And they said, if you're going to try and solve climate change, you need to be aiming for at least a gigaton scale impact. So I thought, right, that's it. That's what I'm going to do. So then I was, I was looking for this means of doing it. And this, this is where I thought, if I personally do a startup, I literally bring no climate tech skills to the table at all. You know, I'm like a general purpose technologist. So that after several steps, I ended up in venture. So our, our goal is to only invest in things that we think can help us towards that number. And the rough breakdown is we want to try and find 10 companies that will make it to the scale of being able to do 10 megatons a year, 10 megatons every year for 10 years, 10 companies, that's one gigaton. So that that's kind of the cornerstone of our thesis. If there are three steps to our investment process, the first step is, do we believe that you've got a clear path to 10 megatons? That kind of rules out a lot of, you know, maybe most startups that we see. And the ask is how we're unique. We're a climate fund. We're the kind of common or garden off the shelf climate fund. But I suppose what we as individuals bring to the table is that A, we've been founders before. So we kind of know a little bit what it feels like. We know what makes a company that will fail. We've seen so many failure modes in our lives. We know the kinds of things to avoid. And I think I personally have got quite a high tolerance for risk. So we go out there and try and find companies that nobody else will give the time of day to. We love that stuff. And we can kind of permit ourselves to do that because we make a lot of investments. So if this year we make 30 investments. It's okay that some of those are actually crazy. I think that's really important because we need to be very innovative. We need to innovate at pace, at scale. We need to try things that have never been tried before. And I think that's the purpose of venture capital. And for some reason, a lot of venture capitalists in this space are very timid. And I don't think now is the time for timidity. Love it. And you're actually set up as a SCIS EIS fund, which for anybody not in the UK is shortly said a government scheme that gives investors tax incentives to invest in early stage companies. That's a pretty good summary of it. I'm sure you find that your LPs and your investors are really up for the ride. Otherwise, they wouldn't have invested. But did you find that was like a logical first step to raise the fund from individuals like that? Or 
what's the kind of their risk appetite. You seem to be like really betting on the big bets that can have a massive impact. But sometimes some people are a bit more conservative as well and maybe want to have the safe bets rather than big ones. I don't know if we've got any anybody conservative in our LP base. You filtered them out beforehand, I assume. <laughs> <laughs> I think I just naturally filter out, you know, people can tell I'm a bit of a risk taker. They're like, no, thank you, Pete Denny. I think the SEIS regime kind of encourages you to try and raise money from exited founders. Founders have already got like quite a tolerance for risk. The people that we've raised money from are either kind of independently wealthy for some reason, they've recently exited a business, or they've raised a lot of money through crypto. And there's two themes. Let's start with the 33%. The 33% of our investors are like, EIS, EIS is amazing, right? If you live in the UK, you should totally be doing EIS. Especially SEIS, it makes it difficult for you to lose too much money. So it massively limits the downside. So 33% of, the, of our investors are just like, don't even really care what you're doing. Here, have the money. If all of the companies go bust, we get like quite a lot of our money back. That's cool. But we've still got this potentially unlimited upside. 66% of them were of the kind of mindset that we've got to do something about climate change. And this story, you're telling Pete Denny that there's incredible people out there. We believe that. So I think I, I had a few examples in mind. I went out and said, here's the kind of incredible companies we're seeing. Here's some that we've missed because we weren't signed off by the FCA quickly enough. These companies could dramatically change the outcome of history. And before you know it, people write us checks. So we don't raise any money from institutions yet. I think that's going to be a harder deal. But I think generally people are very inspired by the climate message at the moment. Got it. And what's your view on the state of funding and climate tech? Again, I already said there's lots of new funds that have been launched in the last two years or so. It seems like loads of new money is streaming in as well. But I just had a discussion at dinner yesterday with a bunch of climate tech founders and investors on like the general funding environment is cooling down a little bit right now. Valuations are going down across the line, especially in the US. Obviously, with public markets crashing, especially for later stage ventures that were like wanting to IPO, there's like a lot of pressure out there. How do you see your job? Has it changed at all in the last few months or weeks? Or do you see climate tech funding still streaming in and being equally active as maybe last year? I haven't got as much to compare this with as other VCs might do because this is my fund. We closed our first tranche. We spent three months raising from November to February and now we're raising again. So we don't have a lot of baseline to compare it with. What we're finding is that there is a small noticeable slowdown amongst the people who'd got a lot of their money from crypto, that some of them are not returning our calls, <laughs> understandably. But I think we're looking to be in climate tech because there's so much money that has to be spent for kind of other reasons. You know, BlackRock have got, what is it, half a trillion to disperse into um, climate tech. How do you go about spending that? You know, so they've got a kind of an allocation problem. I know some hedge funds who are pitching for a large chunk of that money and they're going for maybe half a billion. And if you raise half a billion of funding that you've then got to deploy into climate tech, there's some pressure in there. Wait, how are you going to spend that? So this is where we show up and say, we've got a plan to take 10 million of that off your hands every year. So from those investors who are kind of getting money from those pathways, we haven't really felt much difference yet. Valuations, thankfully, at the higher end are starting to tail off. We were starting to see some that were ridiculous, actually. And when we started to dig into it, speaking to the lead, the lead investors and stuff, how, how did you justify this? It's a great company. We love the founder. We love the tech. It's super exciting. It looked very sexy in our portfolio. But how did you come up with, you know, they'd say, ah, oh, for us, it doesn't really matter. Big valuation like this for us is not a lot of money. And the founder asked for it. So we said yes. So thankfully, we're seeing less of that now. I think that's better for everybody, really. Got it. Is there any advice that you can give to founders in the climate tech space that are currently fundraising? Anything that they should watch out for at the moment? I think when we started, we heard from a lot of people who were advising us that why are you going so hard on this 10 megatons thing? Why are you going so hard on being able to measure the impact? We just felt morally compelled to do it. 
Now it's interesting to see that it's starting to be required by some sources of funding. And we believe that we were amongst the first to be so rigorous and so harsh about our requirements in this space. But actually, we need to keep evolving what we're asking for, you know, so in terms of proof points that your model is not greenwashing, proof points that your impact is going to be 10 megatons, if you say it's going to be 10 megatons, in reporting, in being in the, the right taxonomy, you know, de- declaring correctly what it is that you're doing. It's very encouraging to see, especially amongst our partners in Europe, that that is starting to be required. So I think being quite on top of your game in understanding where your impact is coming from and having a long-term view of making that more and more sophisticated over time, I think that will make it easier for you to raise money. Because I do think there's a big mis-selling scandal about to happen in the kind of greenwashing space, in the mis-selling of carbon offset space. And we all want to be keeping our noses clean when that reckoning comes. So I suppose that's uh, one point I'd make. Well, it's happening already in, in some ways, at least in the public markets. I think Deutsche Bank just got a rate two weeks ago. Um, I mean, Deutsche Bank has a rate booked in every week, I think, generally. But they had one specifically on greenwashing and mischaracterizing their products. And who knows, allegations at this stage. But yeah, it's happening. And I mean, it's relatively obvious if you look at what gets labeled as ESG out there. And if you look at what it actually Yes, you already start questioning the label. If you have like certain oil companies being labeled as ESG because they do things 5% better than the competition, that's yeah, questionable, right? I'd love to cover another theme as well in terms of the spaces within climate tech. Climate tech is such a big term that can include a lot of things from like hardware. You've invested in global OTEC, which is like very engineering driven. Uh, they were on the podcast. Dan was on the podcast before. But then there's loads of software solutions. I think I've seen probably, it feels like hundreds of carbon accounting solutions by now. Uh, there's lots of stuff popping up, but it feels like certain spaces within climate tech almost have a oversupply of new startups being launched and certain spaces I don't see a lot in that may be my own bias. But how do you see the space at the moment? Do you see a lot of startups in certain types of solutions or what's the distribution roughly on the types of startups that you see? The carbon accounting thing and things like browser plugins that will calculate the carbon footprint of your shop. I think those are like climate tech, hello world. And I understand why there's so much of it. It's because quite a lot of the world has converted over the past couple of years to realizing, oh, wow, this is really serious. I need to do something. And we love that. That's amazing. We feel compelled to do something. What do we do? That's the most obvious choice. That is literally the 101, the hello world solution. So but we do see a lot of that. That's completely over, overheated. I think the next thing that you see a lot of is anything to do with the big successful climate tech things that are happening already. So wind and solar and EVs. What's the kind of su- the supply chain and the supporting things around the outside of that? That's very well subscribed. We were speaking to a fund of funds earlier and they deliberately want to focus on things that are novel, that are new. They're like us. They want to look for things which haven't been tested, which have got risk in them. And so they actively avoid anything to do with wind or solar because that's kind of, it's been here for like at least 20 years. What else? I've never said this on camera before, but I'm not as excited about the alt protein space as I used to be. I was vegan for 18 months. I kind of downgraded to being mostly plant-based recently. And I think I just, I started to get sick of this taste of alt meat. And I think what I've started to notice around the vegan community and stuff is similar. So I I think there's kind of like a, a race now to see if we've just got this period of goodwill where people are willing to kind of give it a go. And within that short period, the alt protein community has got to try and come up with something that doesn't taste so uncanny valley. I'm actually quite bearish now on the alt protein. I think the world needs to just start eating more vegetables. The areas where it's underinvested is the more risky stuff. Anything that carries risk that's difficult to understand, that's what we love. If we hear about something that literally we've never heard of that idea before and it sounds crazy, then we get on the phone straight away. 
I love it. I think your approach is very much in line with Jason Calacanis, the angel investor, was talking about it, how he's usually thinking about, let's assume they're going to be successful. How big could this be? How life-changing could this be? Rather than looking for all kinds of reasons why it won't work. Because with any startup, if you do that, you're going to always come up with a million reasons why it won't work, especially in this space, right? Like, again, I mentioned OTEC. You could come up with a million reasons why it won't work. You're not going to invest in actually breakthrough solutions if you have that approach. Is that kind of the mindset you follow? How do you kind of manage the fine line between overhyping something and getting too excited, but also like really seeing the promise in it rather than just finding the things that may go wrong? I think there's like a, an X factor in founders. You see it a lot in founders and you don't see it a lot outside of founders that uniquely qualifies them to be able to deal with problems. And so I, I could sit down and come up with a list of 100 reasons why global low tech is going to suffer. But I've watched Dan roll with the punches. <laughs> it's really quite inspiring to see, you know, things go horribly wrong and he doesn't even stop smiling. And then before you know, he solved it through just being like a crazy miracle worker. That's a big thing of what we look for, actually, the founding team. I know it's cliche to say, but we want to see a team that we think will just roll over all of the rocks in the road without breaking the pace. And I think if that's the case, it doesn't matter. It's kind of not my job anymore to kind of invent problems that could arise. It's nice that we can work through some stuff together. So um, we're quite, obviously quite interested in, in the financial side of things. And so one thing that maybe some founders haven't thought of is how is the cost of capital going to affect you as you go along? You know, it's, it's useful to be able to raise things and get them on their radar. If you find the right team, they will kind of be able to solve all of the problems in the way. So as long as the impact is there, the potential impact, as long as the market is there, as long as the team is incredible, that's most of the boxes ticked, I think. I'm a noob. If I'm coming up with ideas in the meeting and I'm saying, I've pinched this off Alex Gourley. I was on a podcast with him earlier. He said, if you know, if we're having a chat with a founder and within 10 minutes, I've come up with a question that they don't know the answer to. I'm like, ooh, I've never considered that. I think that's a bad sign. But typically, founders are amazing problem solvers. And that's why we love them and need them in our lives. Yeah, and they really should be the experts at what they're doing, right? Like, no matter how sophisticated and educated you are as an investor, the founder should always be the best experts about what they're doing. If they're not, I think that's maybe a little bit of a red flag if you if you know more after quick research than them. Got it. So for a first-time founder that's starting out and is kind of raising their first proper round for the startup, what are kind of like the biggest rules that you would tell them to optimize for success in their funding round? I'm naturally going to say, make sure you've got like a credible story about where your impact is going to come from. It's clear that I'm going to say that. I think one thing we don't see enough of is where people have thought about, they think too much about the product and not enough about the company. And a good sign of that is if they don't really know who their customers are going to be. I get what it's like. You come up with this idea and you think this could solve this amazing problem. But it's not really about the problem and the product, which is the solution. It's not really about that. It's about your customer. It's about who's going to buy it off you. Have you spoken to them? And I think this is the fundamental thing that everybody should be doing. I hear this quite a lot. So your, e.g., your product is going to capture methane from water. Like, cool. Who's going to buy that methane off you? And then, I don't know, it's, so it could be. And then they give you a list of things that it could be. Now, I don't know what it could be. I want to know what it's going to be. Where are you going to start? And you might be wrong about it, but having gone out and spoken to people, and they're like, oh my God, I'd love to buy X from you, or we've really got this problem. You know, I think that's so important. And in our due diligence, we do ring up potential customers and ask them why they're excited about this. Because if a potential customer is excited about a product, then that's so much of the problem solved. So you're basically doing some customer development and see for yourself and how it resonates with their potential customers. Yeah, that's been worth so much to do that. Unless you're in into some super deep tech where really there's a deep engineering or scientific question that needs answering, I think that's probably the next most important thing. 
is where's your market? Who's going to buy this off you? And how are you going to go to market? And uh, we get to paraphrase Jeff Goldblum. We get so tied up in, can we do this? Can we solve this problem? Can we build this product? We get so excited about the product that we forget about. It's not a product, it's a business. We've got to run the business. How are we going to sell the thing? Next thing, I suppose, is storytelling. That's kind of, can you get people who are actually quite critical, excited about it? And um, the mum test will say this, that your mum will say really great things about you about your company, but I try and surround myself with pretty cynical people because <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm such an optimist. I need cynical people to say, listen, Pete, here's 500 reasons why that's a terrible idea. And then I can work through those 500 reasons. Wow. Okay. So you do have like some checks and balances to not go overboard completely. So how do you do it when in the investment process? You're coming up with a thesis on why you're investing in a startup. Why do you believe in them? And then do you try to challenge it in those conversations with the cynics around you? Or how does it work in terms of your decision making? So we, we see hundreds of startups. We've got our thesis set up as a keyboard shortcut. So we can type thesis ampersand and then it'll give us like our thesis in like a paragraph. And our interns can go through and check. This company that's just coming cold doesn't meet this thesis. And so many of them we can write out of that. There's more companies to deal with than we'll ever be able to invest in. So then we, if somebody in the team is excited about one of the things in, in that list, then they'll bring it to you know our pipeline meeting and we'll talk about it and we'll defend it. So any anyone that haven't been rejected in our pipeline meeting, we'll discuss as a team. And often it's the case that there'll be one or two companies in there that somebody in the team is really excited about, and then they will be pitching <laughs> that company. This is still way, way, way upstream of the actual process, but maybe that's some useful insight into how do VCs triage their deals. I'm an intuitive thinker, but I've come from kind of a decision science background, and I am keen to bring like a more quantitative way of working into our methodology. But I, I still believe that this intuition is a useful thing, you know, thinking fast, thinking slow kind of thing. The next step is we've decided we quite like the look of this. Let's speak to the founders. So we get, we get on the horn to, to the founders. And it, it's in that meeting that we'll kind of get a feel as if do we want to take it further or not. From then on, it's kind of down to the founder to prove to us, where's your 10 megatons? Where is it? You know, we're all sitting there with our arms folded because it's really important that they get this right. And often this takes lots of back and forth because they'll send us stuff and it's just either we'll immediately see there's no way that that's 10 megatons, just that's not credible at all. Or there'll be some back and forth where they have to go away and do some more calculations. So our job is to kind of mark their homework rather than do the homework ourselves. Got it. And I've been part of these rooms of making investment decisions as a scout with backed, but also when I was part of Wayra, we were making investment decisions. And I think sometimes this dynamic happens of maybe one or two of the team are really excited about a startup. And then the rest of the team kind of starts voicing all kinds of concerns. How do you manage that? Like taking the concerns seriously, but also still being driven by your conviction into something and then taking the right decision in the end. Well, I'm, I'm a big fan of Ray Dalio. I read all of his stuff. He paints quite an aspirational picture of where, how I want our, our fund to run, which is that everything should really be data-driven. So I think the enthusiasm is super useful. The kind of heuristics, the gut feeling is really useful. But we do need to be able to backsplain that to ourselves. And so that's why I'm always trying to say, you know, if I say, man, I love this founder, I love this founder, then people challenge me. Why do you love him? And we, we've got this model to kind of measure them against, I think it's nine different variables. So what's their T-shapedness? How good is the fit between their experience and the impact that they're trying to have? What's their chutzpah? How brazen are they to go out and kind of make things happen that, that are actually a bit cheeky? And so we've got nine things like that. And we challenge ourselves to listen to that challenge. It's not enough to just to be excited. We need, really need to be able to back up our excitement with cold, hard fact. 
super interesting. We're almost out of time. And so I guess the question that you get very often, I assume, is just like the characteristics of the best founders that you've seen. What is kind of makes a great founder and a great team? And is there any advice that you can say, okay, you should be looking for these type of things and work towards being that type of person or developing your skill set in that way? Anything you can say on that? Now, that's a deep philosophical question. That's especially can it be made or not? You know, do you need to be born a founder? You don't need to be born a founder, but maybe your life to this point is all training to be a founder. And most people by, by this point in their lives, by the time that they're in their 20s, their life choices may have already decided whether they've now got the constitution for it. The world shouldn't be filled with founders. Most people shouldn't be founders. The world would be terrible if everyone was founders. And so it's nothing to feel bad about if you're not a founder. But how can you tell if you are a founder? I think optimism is a really big one. How do you deal with failure? Can you deal with constant failure? <laughs> can you just keep going? Are you dogged? You know, can, can you keep going? That, that's a very important quality. I think the ability to make shit happen. I mean, we all dream about this ideal circumstance to work in. I've worked in some very kind of bureaucratic or even pathological organizations where it really wasn't enjoyable. I hate, like most founders, I hate kind of red tape. But if you're in that kind of environment, you still manage to make things happen. Maybe you're a founder. So there's some qualities which I think they're not innate, but they are developed over many years. I think then there's another thing, which is what do you contribute to a team? So teams, right, that's a lot easier thing to talk about because teams are compositions of people. And if you look at a founding team as a team and not as a set of individuals, then it doesn't really matter who you are, as long as you're great in some way, then you can find people to kind of where their convexities complement your concavities. And I think that's where things like Carbon 13 can sometimes work really well, where you've got people who they're not scientists, they don't come with a great idea, they don't have something which is their life's work, but still they massively know how to make things happen. And when I see that magic where two people are fitting together like Lego, that's where I get excited. I think teams are more important really than individuals. Yeah, that's a really good one. Yeah, Uh, the context matters so much. I think I see it in my own career, but also with other people that I know is like in some contexts and some teams, I think I have been performing terribly. And, you know, I don't want to blame the team for my own performance, but like in other contexts, suddenly it's worked really well and it's just the flow of the team and how it works together. So really good advice there. Last question to you is, in 10 years from now, how does the world look like if Climate VC succeeds? <laughs> uh, I like that. I like that question. So I think there's two paths before us. One's pretty dark. The other one is, if we manage to pull off this climate emergency thing, and we won't have done that by 2032, we won't have done it by then, but we should be well, well, well on our way. If we do that, the world will kind of look a lot different in many ways which are better and in some ways which are probably humbling, depending on where you're from. I think the world is going to be more equitable. It has to be more equitable if we're going to pull this off. And what that means is that the people of Tonga and Sotome and Chad, their standard of living will have gone way up. But our standard of living may have diminished a bit. You know, we're going to have to do a reset on the things that we really value. And if we really love spending time with our family and out in nature and eating clean, wholesome, local food and having great education, then cool, our life is going to be great. If we love kind of going out to nightclubs and having big yachts and having a big posh car and having 12 houses, then I think our lives are not going to be the kind of things that we enjoy anymore. But if you kind of look at the kind of people who are trying to fight climate change and the things that they're interested in, the kind of extra benefits that they're bringing to the world, that they're often by mistake solving some of the other SDGs as well. So there's going to be more clean water, there's going to be better education, there's going to be more women in on boards. Uh, you know, it's, the future's bright from that perspective. I think if we pull this off, we've still got everything left to fight for. Amazing. Love that. That's a great sentence to close with. Thanks very much for making the time, Pete. See you soon. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe share the episode, leave us a review and consider becoming a supporter on 
buymeacoffee.com slash impacthustlers. This means a lot to me. Thank you very much for tuning in and see you next time. Bye.